millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Conduct. I'm Eileen, and as always, joining me is Colleen. How are you doing, Colleen? I'm good. Uh, my car got stolen from Eileen's house last week, but the thieves are nice enough to drop it back off <laughs> around the corner from her house a couple hours later, so I ended up getting it back. She's a little roughed up, but should be back to normal in no time. But dealing with that ate up most of my week this week, so Eileen was nice enough to take the lead on researching this episode while I made about a thousand calls to SFPD <sighs> and my car insurance company. Yeah. Uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know, Allie from Insight is actually in town, so we got to hang with her for a few, and I got caught up on my work, which was really good, so I could focus more on the podcast, which is always a good thing. That is great. I like being caught up on work and caught up on the podcast. That makes me feel very accomplished. I know. I know, right? Because <laughs> it's a lot. We asked some of you to submit some questions on Facebook, and we're actually going to answer a couple of them now. Kendra asked, what case sticks with you the most that you've recorded and why? So uh, the one that I think about a lot is the Evelyn Hernandez case. I think um, I thought it was really well done, Colleen Research, and put that one together. Oh, thank you. Uh, but also, it was just so jarring when you looked at the comparison, the coverage between Evelyn and Lacey Peterson. Yeah, that one, yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about that one, especially since it was local. Um, but for me, I think, yeah, missing persons cases stick with me mm-hmm. the most because maybe a little part of me wonders if they're still out there or, you know, I just really want the case to be solved because you want closure, right? So yeah. Tony, Danielle Clark, and Sneha Phillip are two cases that come to mind off the top of my head that I find myself wondering about. A case that stuck with me that was a solved case was the San Mateo slasher. The families of the victims waited so long for justice. I can't even imagine what that'd be like for them. We were actually contacted by a friend of one of the victims and he's now in his sixties and they just got closure in the last two years. So I can't even imagine what it's like being transported back to being 16 or 17 years old after all that time. I know it's crazy. Another one was Skylar Niece. That also really stuck with me for a while because all those girls were so active on social media. You got like a really full picture of Mm -hmm. their day-to-day life. Like even the like mundane details just that they posted on Twitter or whatever. You know, and also my younger siblings are close in age with them. So that was kind of a weird comparison to have as well. Totally. And, you know, what I find interesting, you know, when you research these cases, old versus new, just how much information you get. Like you said, you you basically got a a detail of their day to day lives because of Twitter and things like that. It's insane. So uh, Rachel asked, how do you choose what cases to cover? And um, well, you know, for me, you know, some come from you awesome listeners uh, like Luca Magnata actually was from a listener. Uh, Some are from cases that we've heard about beforehand and some 
come from just when we're, you know, I'm doing a case and I'm researching it and then you run into another case that's, you know, mentioned because it's similar or, you know, for some reason somehow mentioned and you kind of go down that rabbit hole and you're like, wow, let's put that on the list, you know, so that's kind of. Yeah, yeah, that we get listener recommendations or, you know, friends or family recommendations. We also really like to cover cases that haven't been covered before. Part of this is because we're both such true crime junkies and we're before the podcast. You know, we've heard Mm. or read about in detail a lot of awful cases so we're looking to bring new stuff to you guys but also to each other as well i personally kind of scour the internet for cases that are interesting to me and then i do some initial research to see if there's enough to do like a 30 to 40 minute episode on and a lot of times for more unknown cases there just aren't as much information yeah so I've considered maybe doing an episode with more than one small case in one episode. So that might be something that's upcoming in the future. So Jillian from Court Junkie asked, what went into your decision to start a podcast? What is your favorite episode and your least favorite? Mm, okay, so I think we ran out of true crime documentaries <laughs> to watch on on Netflix and yeah, HBO. Seriously. I think that's kind of what started it. I listen to a lot of podcasts and have several people, Eileen included, that you know, we would recommend podcast episodes or documentaries too. And then we would just discuss them amongst ourselves. Uh, And then one day I just texted Eileen. It was something literally like, you know, it'd be really cool if we did a true crime podcast. Ha 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 ha. And then she was actually like, no, that would be really fun. And I was like, okay, wait, let's actually look into this. And that's literally how it started. The whole, (laughs) the concept of misconduct. Yeah. Um, you know, we're both planners, so we kind of just decided to do it. So that was in September 2016, and then it kind of just fell into place, and it it seemed to work out pretty quickly yeah. and pretty well. Yeah. We work well together. We do, yeah. Um, I think my favorite case might be the San Mateo Slasher, and that was because that was one of the first episodes that I felt like we were really getting the hang mm-hmm. of it. Like, that was a good one. The research and the writing and the recording and everything was really smoothly and on time and according to plan. And I think my least favorite episode, because... Mostly just because, like, the stories themselves are frustrating, was Elizabeth DeCaro because the signs of abuse were there. Yeah. And, then, you know, hindsight being 2020, you and you know how it ends, yeah, at the beginning, right? So you just see this like path that's just going, it's gonna end one way, right? Right, it, it's awful, sad. And then Tony Daniel Clark was also really frustrating because no investigation mm. was really done. So nobody really knows what happened to her. Yeah, that one. Yeah, for that sure. That one's been driving me crazy for weeks. Yeah. Well, you know, Colleen kind of already covered, you know, kind of covered it. We all, you know, we're kind of just true crime junkies. You know, Nicole and I have been friends for 25 years. So and then it spread to Heidi and Colleen. Um, Heidi is Colleen's sisters and my nieces. So we've always had this kind of love of the genre and, you know, we'd always talk about what shows and podcasts and all that stuff. So and I actually went almost went into law enforcement uh, when I was younger. I wanted to be a cop and then dispatch or, you know, things like that. Um, my path ended up being something else. I actually started in accounting and I actually run my own consulting business now. I consult on a software called ConnectWise. Uh, so I didn't quite get into the law enforcement thing. But uh, anyhow, it's just something that's just always interested me for a very long time. And yeah, like she said, we had this moment of talking about it and we did it. Uh, we did a lot of research and several kind of test episodes and bugged our friends to listen to them before <laughs> going live. Um, so, yeah, sorry for the long-winded answer there. But my favorite episode, I you know, I guess Yvonne Telegues. I feel like we really hit a groove in that episode in terms of, like, us co-telling a story. I felt like it just kind of was 
really, I don't know, our back and forth. I really liked it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was amazing because it was 2 a.m. <laughs> we're oh, doing that. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't sure. We had to get it done that night, too. And we just weren't sure how it was going to turn out. And I felt like it turned out really well. Um, and my least favorite, only because its execution was carried out last week and it's been eaten at me, would be William Morva. It was hard because it was a hard case because he's guilty and it you know really had me evaluate my thoughts and opinions which you know isn't a bad thing to do that uh but it's just a really sad sad case and i i wanted to say thank you to everyone who contacted the governor's office asking him to commute his death sentence to life without parole the governor made his decision on july 6 which was the day william was scheduled to be executed um he unfortunately did not feel the same as we did about william and he was executed at 9 p.m eastern time on july 6. So my heart goes out to William's family and his attorneys who worked so hard for him for so many years, as well as his, the families of the Williams victims, Sheriff Eric Sutphin and Derek McFarland. So we are changing things up a bit. So stay tuned after the case uh, for our five-star Patreon shout-outs. Uh, we also have a special message just for you guys and a announcement. So just make sure to stay tuned. And now we will get to tonight's case. In 1979, three brothers and one young accomplice terrorized Richmond, Virginia, and the surrounding areas for seven months, leaving in their wake 12 victims, where only two survived. Once captured and sentenced, two being sentenced to death and sent to death row, they orchestrated one of the biggest and most sophisticated prison escapes in U.S. history. Tonight, we will take you through the lives and crimes of Linwood Briley, James Briley, Anthony Briley, and Duncan Meekins, also known as the Briley Gang. James Sr. and Bertha Briley had their first child, Linwood, in 1955. Their second and third children, James and Anthony, came a few years after that. They lived in the Highland neighborhood of Richmond, Virginia. It was a good area, you know, row homes, nice middle class, you know, area. James Sr. and Bertha were well regarded in the neighborhood, and the boys were generally well regarded as well. They helped mow the neighbor's lawns, helped with cars. They were just kind of helpful boys around the neighborhood. They did have a hobby that struck some neighbors as strange. They liked to keep dangerous pets. They had a boa constrictor, uh, tarantulas, and piranhas. They liked feeding live mice and other live prey to their pets and watching them stalk and eat it. And while that in and of itself isn't bad, people just seem to think that they like to watch it a little bit too much. And that was a general feeling with the boys at the time. Where the fuck did they get a piranha? I don't know where you get a piranha, but yeah, they had piranhas. (sighs) While they were generally liked around their neighborhood at school that was a totally different story they bullied other kids they were indifferent to authority and would ignore punishments given by their teachers around the time the boys are reaching their teenage years james senior and bertha split up and it was an amicable split but around the same time james senior was growing concerned with the pull linwood seemed to have with the other boys he seemed to be able to influence them Linwood was known to be intelligent and charming, and James was not really the brightest one, but he was arrogant and mean and confident in his arrogance and meanness. And then Anthony was the youngest and seemed to just kind of go along with his big brothers. James Sr. was also concerned with how Linwood was acting. While it was rumored that the boys would only listen to their father and that they were scared of him, you know, unlike their teachers or other authority figures, James Sr. would actually lock his bedroom door at night with a deadbolt because he was scared of the boys' behavior. On January 28, 1971, Orlane Christian, who lived across the way from the Briley home, was hanging laundry outside and literally dropped dead. She was 57 years old. 
It was assumed she died of heart problems and or stress as she just recently buried her husband. During the viewing, one of her family members noticed a small blood spot on her. So they asked for a second examination. And upon them examining her body again, they did find a small caliber bullet in her back. So this opened a murder investigation. A detective investigating the case used a really interesting way to determine where the gunshot could have come from. He took an eight foot two by four and cut it to the height of Orlean. Then he drilled a hole at the same angle and the same spot where the bullet, you know, would have struck Orlean and stood in her yard and looked through the hole and just kind of, you know, spun around and realized, oh, it looks like it would have come from the Briley's home. So they searched the Briley's home and they recovered a rifle of the same caliber. It didn't take long or much convincing. Lynn would just outright confess to the murder. He didn't show any signs of remorse. In fact, all he said was, I heard she had heart problems, so she would have died soon anyways. He was 16 years old at this point, and you can clearly see he has no regard for human life. Like, to me, that just, she was just a target for him, like target practice. It's just, yeah, it's disturbing behavior for somebody of that age to commit a murder and then have the reaction that he had. It's very, like... Doesn't seem very concerned about it or concerned about getting in trouble, even. None of it, yeah. Strange. Linwood was sentenced to one year in a reform school, and James seemed to go down a similar path as his big brother. When James was 16, he was arrested for robbery and attempted murder of a police officer. He was actually running from the scene of a robbery, and then he fired at a police officer. It's just not good kids. I just... It's just crazy at such a young age, not just one, but two, right? You know, and they're getting into serious trouble, not yeah. just, a, you know, robbing liquor stores or, or, you know, any. I mean, shooting police officers and killing a woman. I mean, that's... Yeah, that's the very disturbing crimes for somebody so young. Right. So just a little disclaimer, we're going to go into detail about the murders. They're pretty disturbing and brutal. So we don't go into every gory detail, but it's still kind of hard to listen to. In March of 1979, Linwood, James, Anthony, and their neighbor, Duncan Meekins, decided that they were going to start a series of random burglaries and home invasions. The plan was to be in and out quickly and not leave any witnesses. On March 12, 1979, Linwood knocked on the door of William and Virginia Butcher. Linwood said he was having car trouble and asked if he could borrow the phone to call AAA. So William said, hey, I can make the call for you if, you know, you just give me your AAA card. So he opened the screen slightly and, you know, to grab Linwood's card so he could call AAA for him. And Linwood forced himself in and held the couple up by gunpoint. Linwood then waved his youngest brother, Anthony, inside, and they tied the couple up and began ransacking and robbing the house. After they cleaned each room out of anything valuable, they would douse it with kerosene. When they finished stealing everything they wanted... Linwood poured kerosene all over William's legs and lit a match as they left the house, leaving William and Virginia to burn alive in their own home. Luckily, William was able to break free of his binds, and then he got Virginia free, and then they both ran to safety. They are the only two known victims to have survived the Briley gang's seven-month rampage. On March 21st, Linwood and Anthony assaulted Michael McDuffie, who was a vending machine serviceman in his home, They forced themselves into Michael's home and then robbed and shot him to death. On April 9th, 76-year-old Mary Gowan was walking home from babysitting at her daughter's house when Linwood, Anthony, and Duncan spotted her and followed her home. They forced their way into the complex, beat, robbed, and raped her repeatedly. They then shot her in the head and left her in the stairwell. 
Somehow Mary managed to survive the attack, but she fell into a coma and died the next day. On July 4th, 17-year-old Christopher Phillips was lingering around Linwood's car, a little too long for Linwood, Anthony, and Duncan's liking. Thinking that his intention was to steal it, the gang dragged Christopher to a nearby field and beat him until Linwood decided to crush his head with a cinder block. So I just kind of want to just break in the gruesome, right? I mean, the, the brutality of these murders are just horrific to me. I was having a really hard time just kind of going through this myself. And I don't know. It's just so brutal and they're so flippant. They're not angry. They're not... They're just, like, bored. Yeah, it almost seems like they just, like, don't feel like they have anything better to do. Yeah. And this is how they decided to spend their time. It's strange. Yeah. It's really hard for me to wrap my head around, I guess. On September 14th, popular disc jockey Johnny G was performing with his band at a nightclub in Richmond. He walked outside on a break and walked right into the Briley gang. Linwood assaulted Johnny G and they put him in the trunk of his car. They then drove out to Mayo Island, which is in the middle of the James River, and removed Johnny G from the trunk and shot him at point-blank range, killing him. They dumped his body in the river and his remains were found two days later. On September 30th, 62-year-old Mary Wolfong was working as a private nurse. Linwood, James, Anthony, and Duncan followed her home and just as she reached her door, they assaulted her and beat her to death with a baseball bat. They then robbed her apartment, and then on October 5th, on 4th Avenue, not far from the Briley's home, the gang assaulted 79-year-old partially paralyzed Blanche Page and 59-year-old Charles Garner. Blanche was bludgeoned to death, and Charles was beat and stabbed with various instruments. The scissors were left in his back, and the beating and murder of Charles was one of the most brutal the investigators said they had ever seen. The final victims of the Briley gang's rampage through Richmond was a longtime acquaintance and neighbor, Harvey Wilkerson, and his family. Harvey and the Briley's were kind of chummy. You know, Harvey apparently had pent snakes and, you know, they didn't live too far from the Briley home. So they kind of knew each other from the neighborhood. On October 19th, 1979, the Briley gang was celebrating James being paroled earlier that day. They had been drinking and partying all day. And as nighttime approached, they decided that they needed to find yet another victim, and they settled on Harvey because they thought he had been dealing drugs and wanted his money, his customers, or or both. Harvey lived with his wife, Judy Barton, and her five-year-old son. Harvey was outside when he noticed the three brothers and Duncan heading towards him. So at this point, the Briley's had a reputation of being difficult and rowdy and kind of bullish, so Harvey went inside and locked the door when he saw them, you know, approaching his house. Once the Briley gang got Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
to Harvey's apartment. You know, they knocked on the door and fearing what they might do if he didn't open the door, Harvey went ahead and let them in. As soon as the gang got inside, they immediately began attacking Harvey and Judy. They tied them up. They gagged them. Linwood proceeded to rape Judy in close proximity to Harvey and her five-year-old son. After Linwood, Duncan then raped Judy as well. They ransacked the house. They took anything they wanted. And Linwood left and kind of left James in charge. James ordered Duncan to shoot Harvey. So he did, killing Harvey Wilkinson. James then shot Judy, killing her and her unborn child. Anthony shot and killed Judy's five-year-old son. Before leaving the apartment, the brothers let loose Harvey's pet snakes and left two Doberman puppies to fend for themselves. So they terrorized this area for seven months. Just, I don't know. I, I know I keep saying it, but there's just sheer brutality and indifference to the, the killing and the killing a child now, too. Just, I just can't really wrap my head around it. It was, and it was, I'll be honest, it's kind of hard to kind of read through all that. But. Yeah, it is. And it's just, I don't know. It like they wanted potentially drugs and customers and money, I so guess, they decided yeah. to kill a whole family. It just seems like a not understanding the consequences of their actions or taking that into account at all, really. Right. Just kind of like nothing to lose kind of mentality, which is kind of weird. Yeah, I wonder if it's somewhat too like maybe a, that's um, why it's hard for us to like understand. reason through it. <laughs> yeah, know? and I wonder if some of it too is I mean, they've been getting away with it for seven months, so maybe it's a bit of a I'm, you know, indestructible. I'm invincible, too. Kind of like too. a thrill-killing type yeah. of a thing. Yeah. The police had the area under surveillance for something unrelated to the Brileys the night the Briley gang killed the Wilkerson family. They were aware that they had gone into the apartment, and they also noticed them leaving, but they did not realize that when they heard gunshots that that was actually coming from the Wilkerson's apartment. Three days later, the police received a welfare check request for Harvey and Judy, and as they approached the apartment, they noticed the door was slightly open. As the police went in, they found a gruesome scene. Because the puppies were left and survived, the crime scene was had been badly compromised. Because police noticed the Briley gang leaving the Wilkerson's on that day, an arrest warrant was issued for the three brothers and Duncan. When the police went to arrest them, Linwood took off in his car, and his father happened to be in the car as well. He led the police on a chase, and the police finally had to pull a maneuver to push the car into a pole. Linwood ran from the crash but was soon captured. The others turned themselves into the police. The Briley brothers were tough to interrogate. They were defiant and arrogant. Linwood mocked the investigators when questioned about other murders that had happened in the area, stating that they would never be able to be convicted because there was no evidence. That's when one detective noticed a turquoise ring on Linwood's hand, and that ring was the same ring that this detective had purchased for Johnny G., because they just so happened to be friends. It's a random coincidence, but it worked out. Because Duncan's profile didn't match that of a cold-blooded killer, you know, he's from a good family, he lived in a nice home, good student, attended church regularly, they leaned heavily on him, and they offered him a plea deal to turn state's evidence. His parents urged him to take it and cooperate with the police. Without the plea, he'd be facing life and possibly the death penalty, if he took the plea, he could possibly be paroled in 12 to 15 years. Duncan agreed and began telling police about the Wilkerson murders, but also details about other unsolved murders that had gone on in the last seven months. Prior to Duncan's confession, police never connected the crimes as being related as they were all so random. The victims, the areas, the race, sex were all different. The only similarity was the brutal nature of the crimes. 
Duncan received an 80-year sentence. He would be eligible for parole in 12 to 15 years. Anthony received a single life sentence because police could not prove that he was directly responsible for any of the murders. Linwood was found guilty and given multiple life sentences and the death penalty for the murder of Johnny G. James was given multiple life sentences and the death penalty for the murders of Judy Barton and her son. A Richmond judge presiding over one of the trials said this was the vilest rampage of rape, murder, and robbery that this court has seen in 30 years. Linwood and James were sent to death row at the Mecklenburg Correctional Center in Virginia in early 1980. It wasn't long until the brothers had a successful drug and weapons trade business going on from inside death row. Enterprising little sons of bitches, aren't they? Seriously. Mecklenburg Correctional Center was the strongest maximum security prison in Virginia at the time. There was only one way in and one way out, and all locks were computerized and no two doors were to be opened at the same time. The prison was built in separate locked sections as well. So you had building one and then within building one, they had blocks and then pods, A, B, and C, etc. All of these independently locked from one central location and then sub-locked in the pods from another location. Linwood Briley studied the systems and procedures of the prison and started formulating an escape plan with the help of other death row inmates. Two months before the breakout, an inmate on death row sent an anonymous tip to the assistant attorney general that there was a bomb being constructed as part of an escape plan. This information went to the warden, which led to two shakedowns, but they found nothing. On May 31, 1984, while inmates were out for their yard time, two inmates asked guards to go in early. Even though this was against regulation, two guards escorted the two men back to the prison, leaving the other guards outnumbered. When the time came to go back in, they complied, but once in the first door, the inmates started to argue and push each other around a little bit, causing some ruckus, taking the guards' attention away from counting heads. One inmate, Earl Clinton, slipped into the guard bathroom. The guys stop the ruckus and are escorted back into the common area, and the guards don't even realize that one man is missing. After the inmates were back in their area, one guard goes to use the bathroom and notices that it's locked, but they brush it off and don't do anything. Protocol dictates that they should have called maintenance, but they probably just didn't think that it was that big of a deal, so they just left it. That night, when medication time rolled around, a nurse comes to distribute meds. She usually gets water from the guard bathroom. She tries to open the door, but it's locked. She brushes it off and continues to distribute meds without water. Again, they should have called maintenance, but they didn't. While the nurse was distributing meds, someone says their toilet is clogged, causing you know more confusion and distraction. The nurse went to the other pods or closed-off areas to distribute meds while clogged toilet was being taken care of. She would come back later to finish off her medication distribution, and this distraction kept the guards from noticing that there was an inmate missing. Then, an inmate in another pod got the attention of the guard who was in charge of the locks. He was in this locked room. He asked if he could give this book to Linwood Briley. The guard left his post left the door ajar, as he's done a million times when doing something really quickly, and grabbed the book from the one inmate. He then went over to the area and called for Linwood and gave Linwood the book. Linwood yells, thanks for the book, and that was a signal for Earl, who was hiding in the bathroom this whole time, to take over the control booth. He unlocked the doors and let the men out of their cells, and all these men had knives and weapons on them, and they sprang into action and started taking control of Death Row's sea pod. So they take control of C-Pod within three minutes. They took the guards hostage, they stripped them of their clothes, their nightsticks, their money, their watches, and they tied them up. The inmates decided they needed a hostage of higher importance, so they page a lieutenant 
and one of the guards is forced to tell him that they need him down at C-Pod as an inmate has been injured in an altercation. Lieutenant Johnson sends a guard down to handle the situation, and that guard is then captured. The guard and the nurse who was distributing medication return to C-Pod, and the inmates capture them as well. As they are capturing and stripping the guards, the inmates are putting on their uniforms and taking their weapons. Derek Peterson takes the nurse and puts her in a cell. Earl Clayton and Linwood Briley begin to attack and molest her. The tied-up guards can hear her screams and are helpless to do anything, but luckily two inmates stop them and tell them to remember the plan. Basically stick to the plan. James Briley wanted to kill some of the guards, thinking that there are too many to handle now, but another inmate says, remember the plan, and talks them out of any bloodshed. Lieutenant Johnson hasn't gotten an update from the incident at C-Pod, so he goes to C-Pod himself. He notices the place in disarray and then is taken hostage as well. By this time, all the guards in C-Block have been taken hostage. They lock the hostages in the closet, and Linwood grabs a TV that will be used as a bomb later. The inmates have the lieutenant call the main control room and state that another officer is going to come relieve them of duty. She doesn't question it, and when this officer shows up, she opens the door. It's actually two inmates dressed as guards, and they take control of the main control room, so they now have access and control of the entire building. This one room can operate all the doors needed to get outside, and this was their last hurdle before freedom. The inmates have the lieutenant call for a van and request both main gates that lead to the outside be opened as there's an emergency. The escapees make their way to the loading dock. Now, only six are actually leaving. Several stay behind because they happen they have appeals pending or other various reasons. They helped with the takeover and escape, but only six are going to actually leave the prison. Because if you're caught breaking out, you're never going to leave prison again. It's probably a big reason, another big reason why not all left. As they get closer to the loading dock, one inmate stays in the main control booth to unlock all the doors. On the way out, they grab riot gear to kind of further hide their identities, and they grab a fire extinguisher and a stretcher. They put that TV that Linwood had stolen on the stretcher. And as they approach the dock, and the van was approaching at this time as well, you know, with another guard in there, they're yelling, live bomb, live bomb, it's going to blow. So the guard who brought the van took off. While the men all ran out, they were blowing the TV with the fire extinguisher to make it look like this bomb was smoking. They all jump in the van, and they drive away at 10.47 p.m., It took about two hours to execute this escape, and now six fugitives who have been convicted of killing 17 people in total are now on the loose. So besides Linwood and James Bridley, the other escapees are Earl Clanton, who killed a woman just months after being paroled for killing another elderly woman, Glenn Tuggle raped and killed two elderly women, Derek Peterson killed a supermarket manager after robbing him of $6,000, and Willie Leroy Jones robbed and murdered an elderly couple. He asked the wife to pray for him before shooting her and setting the house on fire. And I just felt like this was the craziest escape. It was kind of amazing that they planned and got away with it. I mean, it's such a sophisticated plan, but I feel like it relied so much on dumb luck. Like there are so many opportunities for that plan to have spectacularly failed. I think yeah, Crazy. <laughs> it is. I think, you know, they probably saw, you know, like I said, Linwood was known to be, you know, intelligent. And maybe he saw that the guards just they could get away. It relied a lot on the guards not following protocol and just sort of being relaxed with these death row inmates. Surprisingly, they were kind of lax with them. And yeah, it, I think it's crazy. I don't think that this would happen nowadays. No. Yeah. No, not at all. I think there's a Maybe this is why this doesn't happen nowadays. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? 
Um, The fugitives ran, but were all caught. Clanton and Peterson were out for 19 hours before they were caught by police. Tuggle and Jones went to Vermont, and they were actually trying to get to Canada. Tuggle was caught after 10 days, and Jones, who was lost in the woods of Vermont, called and turned himself in. Police say he was happy to be taken in. You know, he's hungry, dirty, and tired, and lost in the woods for 10 days. (laughs) The Briley brothers went to Philadelphia to live with their uncle when an informant for the police tipped them off that the brothers would hang out at a body shop. The FBI set up surveillance on the garage and swooped in when they confirmed it was them. They were out for a total of 19 days. After returning to prison, Linwood and James' appeals quickly ran out, apparently heard by some 70 appellate judges. Linwood Briley was executed in Virginia's electric chair on October 12, 1984, James Briley was executed in the electric chair on April 18, 1985. Anthony Briley is still in prison and all of his applications for parole have been denied. Duncan Meekins is also still in prison awaiting parole. So this case was just insane to me. The brutality, between the brutality of all the murders and the rampant disregard for human life shown, especially by the eldest brother, Linwood, was really quite shocking to me. I I don't know. I just can't imagine living at Richmond during that time, too. It's had to be terrifying, you know, having all this happen or Richmond and the surrounding areas, really. The only word I can really use to describe these men are animals. They they preyed on the weak in like in a pack and, you know, they would go and just look for people to, to kill and, and for what? For a few minor possessions? It's And it's not even that they, they killed people. It's, they made sure their last moments were painful and very, very violent. I know we say this a lot, you know, I'm against the death penalty, but cases like these... Uh, I'll put it this way. I'm not crying in my milk that they were put to death. I I know it's kind of harsh, but reading about what they did to their victims and how they had no remorse, it's just really unconscionable. In this case is, yeah, it's brutal. Um, It's just strange and disturbing. I think too Mm -hmm. is a big part of it. Just, you know, they had seemed to have very little regard for human life. They seemed to just kind of kill because they felt like it or kill because they wanted something. Um, That prison break is insane. I think it was equal parts, you know, planning on the part of the inmates because Linwood was is very smart to have noticed all of those little things. He would have had to have watched so carefully to be able to plan something that intricate. Yeah. But it was also, you know, the lack of following protocol on the part of the guards, which led this breakout to happen. It's like straight out of a movie, though. Reading about that was crazy. Right. You know, I think cases where there's no motive or remorse are especially hard to read about it. And also, they were so young when these crimes were committed. So I think that's also really disturbing. You know, I think they were not even 30 by the time they were put to death. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. So this happened in their teens and 20s. Exactly. Yeah. But you're right. It does make it, I think, even that much more disturbing. But uh, I think that wraps us up for today's case. But, 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 but stay tuned uh, for some shout outs, a special message and an announcement. So we have some five star reviews to shout out. It will be... Slash 1901, Kristen Yee, Leafs Girl, Mike Inkberg, uh, B. Monroe 11, Helena XO. Thank you so much for your reviews. If you're liking the show and have a moment, please consider jumping on iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating or review. This helps us out and helps others find the podcast as well. We also have some new Patreon supporters as well. Thank you to Michael and Sergio for your support. You help us produce the show. We can't thank you enough. If you'd like to see what rewards we have for our Patreon supporters, head on over to patreon.com slash misconduct podcast. 
And I just want to say to our reviewers, our patrons, those who emailed us, who left us Facebook posts or messages supporting us and saying that you love the show. I just want to know it means the world to us for you to say that there's just no words really to describe it. When we wake up and we see a nice message from you guys saying you like the show, it really, really does make our day. I know it just seems like a few simple words, but words are powerful. And the fact that you guys took the time, even just a quick note or iTunes review or email or whatever, or Facebook, to compliment us, it just puts us over the moon. Because, you know, we pour a lot of ourselves into this, as I'm sure you guys know. It's, it's a lot of work and we're learning as we go. So when we get a little note saying something positive or you appreciate this little labor of love we have going on here, it affects us more than you probably know and it makes us want to just be that much better so I just wanted to say thank you very much you guys are really the best now you really are the best you know we moved this to the end so we could blabber on a little bit more <laughs> but you're all so great we we just hit our seven month mark which is crazy yeah uh, I don't know where the time went <laughs> at all and we passed 200,000 downloads this week and we're like kind of honing in on 250 which is quickly too so many more than we ever thought we would get when we started this and we didn't think that we would i don't know it's crazy to think about and hearing people you know that they like this show is really cool um and remember any bay area local people we're having a meetup on july 15th at the keystone in san francisco which is right off of fourth and market so if you're taking bart that's the best way to get there Mm -hmm. well we really hope you can make it Head on over to our Facebook group to discuss this week's case. If you're not already a member, join and one of our mods will add you ASAP. We love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases, so hop on over and let us know what you think of today's case. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. We also want to give a shout out to the Blank Tapes for our intro and outro music. Be sure to check them out on Bandcamp and listen. If you have a case suggestion, let us know about it. You can email us at MisconductPodcast at gmail.com. We will see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.